willing to, to answer our prayers. He's not like the grumpy friend. He's a gracious father. And then he's also a trustworthy father. If we ask, seek, and knock, he is, he is ready and eager to, uh, to give and to uh, open for us. And then we also find that he's a good father. He's not going to give us a scorpion or a stone. He's going to give us a good gift, and the greatest gift of all is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we see the opposition. Because the opposition against Jesus is mounting, Jesus heals, uh, he casts out a demon from a mute man. The mute man begins to speak, and the crowd marvels. But the religious leaders attack Jesus and say that he cast out the demon by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, by Satan himself. Jesus says, Satan's not going to cast out a fallen angel, a demonic angel, because a kingdom against itself, will, divided against itself, will not stand. Satan is no fool. He's not going to be hurting his own kingdom. So that means if, if Jesus is casting out demons not by the power of Satan, then whose power is it? It's the power of God. And so Jesus says, it's by the finger of God. If it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then know your Messiah King is in your presence. The one who's going to overthrow Satan's empire is in your physical presence. He is standing with sandals on the dusty ground of Israel. And um, then he says, if Satan is the strong man protecting his palace, then the stronger man can come in, break down the armory, and, and take everything that belongs to that or that the strong man had. And Jesus said, I am the stronger one. I'm going to ultimately overthrow Satan, all of sin and all of evil. Remember what I said as we ended this morning. There's no place for neutrality. Nobody can be neutral with Christ. If you, if you feel you're neutral, then you're against him. Because Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You're either gathering with me or you're scattering. So looking at verse 24. Let's pray. Father, open our minds to these scriptures as we consider again the hostility of these religious leaders. Those are the ones that hated Jesus so much. He interrupted their power struggles and their religious traditions and rituals that they so relied on to give them favor with you. And yet Jesus cuts to the core and reveals who he is, and yet they still will not believe the word. Oh, Father, make... Help us to be receptive to your word, to hear and to believe and to be quick to obey your word. Thank you, Father, for this text. And we would pray that you would encourage us and strengthen our faith with it as we seek to understand more about our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 24. Jesus is proving what he just said in verse 23. You cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Let me say this as well. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no place for apathy, complacency, or lukewarmness. There is not. I, I, don't, I understand how unsaved people can be hard-hearted, rebellious, and angry at Jesus. They, don't, they want to use his name as a swear word. They don't want any um, biblical values. I get all of that. I don't understand how a born-again believer can, can be so apathetic or complacent about spiritual things. It, it makes no sense. So Jesus is going to clarify that in verse 24 with, an, with a little illustration. When an unclean spirit, this demonic spirit, this fallen angel, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places. This unclean spirit, this demon spirit, goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, ah, I will return to my house, meaning the, the man from which I came. And when he comes... 
he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes out and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. They're dwelling in that man. And the, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. This is horrifying. Here's a man who a demon is cast out of him, and he, he now has some sense of morality and, and uprightness, but he is not saved. He is not born again. He is not a child of God. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He has a spiritual vacuum, and he thinks that is enough. Simply to get rid of the spirit is enough, or the, this fallen angel is enough. The spirit is going around roaming and can't find a place to inhabit. So they, he goes back and he sees that this man has done nothing to fill this empty spirit, this empty heart. So the fallen angel gets seven more, even more wicked than him. They go and inhabit this man, and this man's life is even more ruined than it was to start with. There is no place for neutrality. There's no place for just taking life with Christ casually. This is a gigantic spiritual battle, and we just can't coast and, and, and ride on some kind of morality or religiosity. I'll tell you what, it would be far better to be an irreligious, pagan person who denies God and lives in the world than it is to be a moral, religious person without salvation. Do you understand? A moral, religious person without salvation, they think they have it made. So Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. He's like, you have all of these outward things, but you don't have a new heart, a new birth. And so um, you think you're right with God, but you're not. And so the end of you will be far worse than even it was at the beginning. And so there's no place for neutrality. There's no place for compromise, apathy, complacency. It's really the place, it's, it's replacement. If we don't replace evil with something good of the Holy Spirit, well, then evil will come and it will devour us. It'll destroy us. But now look at verse 27. While Jesus is talking in this large crowd, it happened, verse 27, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, I love this, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. This, by the way, is a compliment. Now, I know I have said before in other messages, this is like Mary idolatry, idolatry of, of Mary. But actually, I, I think this woman is simply saying, Jesus, you are so incredible that your mother is blessed to have nursed you and given birth to you. Now, it didn't even Angel Gabriel say, Mary, blessed are you among all women. You have found favor with God, for you shall deliver the, the Messiah in your womb. The Holy Son of God will be born through you. So there is a special blessing for Mary. And Jesus, notice, Jesus doesn't discount this. Do you want to know why I think this is in the text? In the midst of all this hostility, where these people are blaspheming Jesus, attributing him and his power to Satan, they don't believe him, they don't trust him, here comes a woman in the crowd, and she is all pro-Jesus. Do you agree? She is all pro-Jesus, and she is willing to stand up and shout in a crowd of hostile Pharisees and, and lawyers. She is willing to stand and say, blessed is your mother who gave you birth because you are amazing, Jesus. And um, so Jesus says in verse 28, but he said, more than that. See, Mary does have a blessing of being the one to give birth to the, to the Son of God. To, to God himself as a virgin conception. But more than that, he opens it wide. He adds to it, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's one thing to say, you gave birth to 
God in human flesh through the Holy Spirit's overshadowing. It is another thing for us to say we can be even more blessed if we hear the word of God and we obey it. Do you understand? The issue now with these, the people that Jesus is talking to, they do not hear the word of God and they do not believe it. They will not be saved. They are so hard-hearted. So he's going to, to cut to the chase. Now, if you get a large crowd for church these days, most times, what would a pastor want to do? If you want to keep a crowd, what do you have to do? You have to entertain them. You have to talk nice. You can't say anything to be offensive. You want to keep a big crowd. You don't want to talk about sin and the penalty of sin and, and how God chastens those who disobey in all of these biblical texts. You'd want to say as soft and nice of a message like, be happy. God loves you. I love you too. God loves you. That's a, a great message. That's not what Jesus does. Look at verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, Jesus has now attracted a huge crowd. Why? Nothing attracts a crowd like a good fight. And these Pharisees are arguing with Jesus over this demon-possessed man who was, the demon was cast out and the man was healed. He's, they've created an uproar and everybody is flocking to the scene. So there's a thick crowd. Can you picture it? Here's what he says. This is an evil generation. Okay, that's not how you're going to win the crowd, Right? This is an evil generation he's speaking about. Now, why does he call them evil? Why does he call the, the current generation alive at his time evil? Here's why. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jesus, now remember, go back to chapter 11, and I want you to look out, um, look at, oh, where is it here? Yeah, go back to, yes, verse 16. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. So there was a group that attributed his power to Satan, Beelzebub, and a second group were testing him, wanting a sign from heaven. So now he's going to address the sign from heaven. He said, okay, an evil generation wants a sign. You guys want a miracle. Listen, everybody. Jesus has calmed the storm by simply standing up in a boat and saying, peace, still. And the whole storm with wind coming from four directions and waves 20 to 30 feet high, he calms the storm instantly by speaking. He can feed 10 to 12,000 people with a small lunch. He has healed the blind. He has um, healed the leper, cast out demons. He has taken care of deaf people and made them hear. He has made mute people speak, and he has raised the dead. How many more signs do they need to see? Do you agree? These people will not believe no matter how many signs, and they want one more. Give us one more, Jesus. One more, and we'll finally believe you. And I hear that all the time. I don't, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. You know, whatever. And they're like, they will put it off and put it off and want more and more. When will you ever come to the fact that the death of Jesus and his resurrection is enough? And the word of God is enough. Do you understand? The work of Jesus on the cross is enough to save us, and the word of God is enough to tell us about it. We don't need anything else. But what's the most popular churches? What are they offering? Signs and wonders. Come and be healed. Come and hear our next prophet. Come and do this and whatever. We don't need signs. We need to hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jonah, Jesus says, I'll, I'll give you one sign. It's going to be an Old Testament sign. It's the prophet Jonah. Okay, listen, everybody. 
Jonah is a reluctant prophet. He needs to go 450 miles north to Nineveh, the capital city, and he needs to preach a message of judgment. He needs to go up to this Gentile wicked city and he needs to say, 40 days are marked for you and God is going to rain down judgment and destroy you, your cattle, your beasts. Everything in the city will be destroyed 40 days from now. That's what he has to do. But instead, he runs the other way. He doesn't want to bring the message of grace to a wicked city, so he runs the other way. And he ends up being cast over in the middle of a storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And the Bible says in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah sinks in the water until he reaches the moorings of the mountain in the sea. Where are the moorings of the mountain in the sea? The moorings are the bottom of the mountains of the sea. The islands are the tops of the mountains. Where the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, we would call that the moorings of the mountain, Jonah has made his way from the surface of the water all the way down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And then it says in Jonah 2, weeds wrapped around his head. There's weeds down there and all sorts of fish. But the weeds wrapped around his head and he's at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you think he survived? I would say my view is and it doesn't matter but because the Bible is not crystal clear on this, but my view is Jonah, the prophet, dies. And a great fish swallows Jonah. Now, I know there are stories of fish that have swallowed people and all of this, and, and they come out bleached white and stuff like that. I believe, from the Bible, Jonah is down at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. God prepares a great fish. The great fish swims along, swallows up Jonah, and Jonah is now in the abdomen of, the, of this great fish for three days and three nights. And after three days and three nights, the fish makes its way to the shore and, and vomits out, it says, the Bible says, vomits out Jonah onto the shore. I think the sign of Jonah the prophet, Matthew 12, verse 40, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. Was Jesus dead for three days and three nights in the belly of the earth? Yes, he was. He wasn't just unconscious. He was dead. I believe Jonah physically died. And he goes to Nineveh and he says, Listen, you Ninevites. I died in disobedience to God. I died at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. God prepared a great fish. The fish swallowed me, spit me out on earth, and God resurrected me, and I am here as evidence of a death and resurrection. If you do not believe, you will die and, and never live. You'll, you'll be punished forever in your sin. Now, how did the Ninevites respond? They believed. From the king to the very smallest of the nation, they believed in that city. And God spared them. Do, do you think, let me ask you a question. Did they hear the word of God from a reluctant Jewish prophet and did they believe? They did. They were a wicked Gentile nation, a city, and they believed. So that's the sign. Verse uh, 30, For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Verse 31, The Queen of the South. This is 1 Kings 10. I wish we had time to read it. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Wait a minute. Why is the Queen of Sheba... The queen from the south, the queen of Sheba, which is current day Yemen, why is she going to be at the great white throne judgment 
And when the people alive in Jesus' day are standing before the great white throne ready to be cast into hell, the Queen of Sheba is going to stand up and say, here's my verdict. This evil generation that was alive in the days of Jesus, they must go to hell. Why? Why would she have that? Here's why. She travels 1,400 miles with great expense to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She goes to Jerusalem. She hears the wisdom of Solomon. She sees the the great wealth. She brings millions of dollars of jewels and gold and silver and all sorts of spices such as nobody has ever seen, the Bible says. 1 Kings 10, 1 through 13. You should just read it. It's phenomenal. So this queen, she listens to Solomon. And you know what her, her response was? Solomon, you are so wise. The half of what you are is never been told. What I heard was only half of what you're really like. You are absolutely phenomenal. Then she said this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has done all of this for you. The queen acknowledges the God of Israel as the one true God. I believe she's saved. Listen, if a Gentile queen can travel 1,400 miles to hear a Jewish king and believe the Jewish king's word and be saved, that's pretty remarkable. Don't you agree? We have two really remarkable things. We have a wicked Gentile city called Nineveh that responds to a reluctant Jewish prophet, and they believe the, they believe the word of God and get saved. You have a queen who travels 1,400 miles, and she hears a Jewish king and believes the word, and she gets saved. And then Jesus says, listen, everybody, there's a greater than Jonah and the queen of Sheba standing in your midst, or Solomon. There's a greater than Jonah and Solomon standing in your midst, and you will not believe me. They believed Jonah, they believed, uh, she believed Solomon, and here I am, the very son of God, and you will not believe me. Do you think this generation in Jesus' day is an evil generation? Absolutely. Let's read it. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment, in the judgment, this is the day of judgment, with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, Jesus says, a greater than Solomon is here standing in your presence. He could have said, Pharisees, touch me. I am greater than Solomon because Solomon was a great king full of wisdom. I am almighty God in human flesh. And then look at the next verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment. These believers from Nineveh at the great white throne will rise up and they will say amen to all of these people going into a lake of fire. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, you, you people will not believe my voice, and I am the voice of God. I am God speaking to you the message of grace and salvation, and you will not believe. How hard-hearted can you be? Are we any different in this age, 2023? Do you think, how do you think the United States would respond to Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, the preaching of Jonah, or even the Son of God himself, hard-hearted. We live in an evil generation. And praise God, you have believed the word of God and you are saved. I pray that you are. 
Because then you have done, you've really, you've done what is, what is right and good because there's only one way of salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. This generation alive in the days of Jesus, wow, um, they have seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus and they will not believe. So now we're going to finish up with these next verses that go along with the, the hymn um, at the cross. Remember I told you to think about the word light? At the cross, at the, light, at the cross, um, where I first found the light and the burden of my soul rolled away. Listen to this, verse 33. No one, Jesus says, when he has lit a lamp, puts it, on a secret, puts it in a secret place or under a basket. Nobody does that. But on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. Listen, everybody, we can't do much without the light. I, I, just, I think about people who are blind, like completely blind. I think, what an amazing thing that they can do to get around and to read Braille. It's, just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. But listen, everybody, I take my sight for granted. I was walking the other day just to clear my mind and get some exercise, and as I was walking down Kenosha Road, I thought, I'm just going to close, because I was thinking of the text, and I thought, I'm just going to close my eyes. It did not take me long to, to hit the rumble strip of Kenosha, and I realized three steps, and I wasn't even walking a straight line. I, I need light. I need light to walk, uh, and to be able to drive, to be able to read, to be able to do things. I need light. So we don't take light and hide it. We set it up on a lampstand so it can, be, it can direct our path and it can give us safety and protection. Verse 34, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, when your eye is healthy, your whole body also is full of light. I experienced it the other day. Actually, I remember one time we had a, a blind girl in our youth group when I was youth pastor. And we went bowling. And I told the youth group, I said, I want all of you to, to from the time we get to the bowling alley, I want you all to wear blindfolds, like, so you cannot see one thing. And I want you to go in, you're going to get your shoes, you're going to find a bowling ball, you're going to find your lane without sight. So we could all be with Wendy. Her name was Wendy. And so all of us, we all put on blindfolds. And then we had to be led to get our shoes and pay and then to get our bowling ball and find the, find the lane and then try to bowl. And, and I thought, I thought the, the bowling alley was like the most gigantic place in the world. To get from one place to the other, I thought, this, I don't know, because it was, uh, we weren't in a Duluth bowling alley, we were in Hibbing, um, off of 37 there. And I was like, this, this is like the, the biggest bowling alley I've ever been to. At the end, we all took our blindfolds off and it was like, Wow. I mean, everything is so close, but it just looks so different in my vision. Here, if your eye is healthy and good, it can take in the light, and then your whole body is good. Your whole body is, is full and full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Is, let me ask, is the problem the light? No, the problem is not the light. The light is there. The light is shining. What is, pro what is the problem? It's the eye. It's the unbelief. It's the hard heart. It needs to be broken with re genuine repentance. It needs to be a complete understanding of, I am a wretched sinner deserving eternal lake of fire, and Jesus died for me. He loves me that much. He died for me that I might live with him forever. So then he says, verse 35, Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Make sure that what you think you see is not darkness, of unbelief, but true belief in Jesus. 
If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, that's a genuine believer, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So not only do I have the light, I need to share the light with others. I need to encourage others to believe in the gospel. This is our mission. So Jesus wraps it up and says, You evil generation, the the God of light is in your presence and you cannot even see him. All you see is darkness. If you could believe, then the light of Jesus would penetrate your hard heart and your dark soul. So aren't you glad that you have trusted Jesus, that you believe? I remember when I believed, October 1st, 1993, literally, it was like going from darkness to light. One moment, I was in utter despair. Um, and, the, and the next moment, I was like, I get it. I, I get it now. I, I now. I can now see. And I would read the Bible, and I'd be like, wow, I get it. This, this is glorious, our Savior and our God. And remember, I went to the pastor at the time, and I said, I said, listen, I said, um, I have a business. I have uh, 300 music students. I have a whole retail department. I was president of the business club. I was 26 years old. And I said, uh, Pastor Lapine, um, I, I, now, I now am saved. I now have light. And I said, all I know is this. The only way I can know my Savior is through the Bible. Where do I go to learn the Bible? I don't, I don't care about music anymore. I don't care about anything except... Since Jesus saved me, all I need to know is, who is Jesus? That was almost 30 years ago, and it's been a pursuit of mine. Who is Jesus? Like, I want to know more of him every day. I cannot wait to learn more of Christ. So that's this idea of light in your body. All right, well, we're not done with this. Um, What we're going to do next Sunday morning, just so you know, Jesus is invited to lunch at a Pharisee's house. And he reads their thoughts, and he, during the whole lunch, he just tears them apart with woe after woe. It's like you go to somebody's house for dinner, and then he just literally goes on the host because the host is, is really upset about how the fact that Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. So we'll talk about that. And then you'll hear all of the woes, both against the, the Pharisees and then against the scribes or the lawyers. That, and they're all at the table having dinner, and um, Jesus is going to teach them a, a huge lesson. I always wonder, which of these Pharisees will we see in heaven? Anybody know a Pharisee we'll see in heaven? Yeah.